0: Uh, Mark 16, that's where we are this morning. Verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Siloam had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was a very, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment. And they were affrighted. That means they were afraid. Of, this is probably King James. He said unto them, "Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter." that he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall shall ye see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. So we find the regular Sabbath ending uh, Saturday at sundown. And Jesus rises from the dead sometime on the first day of the week, which begins at Saturday sundown. Uh, he rose sometime Sunday before sunrise. Okay, or uh, might have been Saturday evening on our calendar. We don't have an exact time for him there, but he's he's up. And the women purchase spices in order to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. They're unaware that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus have wrapped the body in linen cloths with myrrh and aloes. And the women then rest until the early morning. So they buy the spices at the end of the Sabbath, but it's, you know, dark and they're not going out there. They come back early in the morning to anoint the body as the sun's rising so that they might uh, do this service to Jesus for His body. But Jesus has already risen from the dead. Um, Malachi 4, the last book in the Old Testament, verses 1 and 2, reminded me of this passage where it says, For behold, The day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all them that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up. So he's talking about the judgment time coming, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. He says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness, and of course this is the son S-U-N, but we know the S-O-N son. The Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. So these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of uh, the other apostle James, James the Lesser, uh, Salome, who is um, pretty sure that she's the mother of James and John by comparing different passages. They come to anoint the body in the burial custom. This is the first time they've had the opportunity But they don't get to carry out their task. That time has passed. Only Mary of Bethany was able to anoint Jesus before his death and burial, as we read with the alabaster box. This hasty preparation by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, this wasn't the normal process by which a burial would take place. But it wasn't a normal situation. So we learn the lesson from this that we, we need to minister to Jesus as we are led, when we are led, and don't delay. Don't let the time escape in serving Him. You know, at, at, at this time, they could serve Jesus directly, in person, in His body. We don't have that opportunity now, so we, need, we seek ways to serve the Lord. And One of the prime ways to serve the Lord is to serve His body, because He so identifies with His body that, as you have done to the least of these, and he may be talking about the Jews in the context there, but he he identifies closely with his body as he spoke to the Apostle Paul. Why are you persecuting me? And you know, Paul was throwing Christians in jail and he says when they were condemned, I voted against them so that they'd be put to death and so forth. And so Jesus says, hey, you're persecuting me, man. <laughs> when Mark... Uh, Fourteen, we we had read verses seven and eight about this service to the Lord, and he says uh, they had complained that you know that the ointment could be sold for three hundred days' wages, about a year's wages, and given to the poor. And Jesus replied in verse seven, "You always have the poor with you, but you can do what is good for them whenever you want, because they're always there. Uh, but you do not always have me." She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. In Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10, we read, So we must not get tired of doing good and serving the Lord, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So household of faith is a priority, but we're to do good to all, whether they're believers or not. As much as we find the opportunity. We want to serve the Lord while we have the opportunity. In John chapter 9, verse 4, as he's about to heal the man born blind, Jesus says, We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. So there are those times, you know, and the time may come, when we're not able to serve the Lord or to serve one another in the way that we can now. So we need to take those opportunities. I found it very interesting here that Jesus includes his disciples in the work. He says, We must do the works of him who sent me. He could do it alone and do it perfectly. I remember Chuck Smith talking about uh, when he was doing projects around home and stuff, and his boys were young and they wanted to help him, you know. And he said he always let them help him, and he said he could do it much faster and, you know, easier without them helping him. <laughs> but he. he Allowed them to help him. It's kind of the same way with the Lord. He can do it all, but he wants to allow us the opportunity to to serve with him. He wants us to share in the work and share in the reward. He wants to fellowship with us in the work. So as the women come to anoint Jesus' body, they encounter another problem. Or they think of another problem in uh, verses 3 and 4. They said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. Their problem was solved before they could even talk to anybody about it. The Lord took care of it. So they had observed Jesus' body being entombed. They knew where the tomb was. They likely saw the large stone being rolled into place at the opening of the tomb. And now they wondered how they would get into the tomb. Who will remove the stone from the opening so we can accomplish our task? We should have brought some of those cowards with us. <laughs> then as they looked looked up from their conversation, oh, well, I'm not putting them down. I'm you know, identify as a coward. <laughs> then as they looked up fr- or looked up from their conversation, they see that the stone is already rolled away and the stone was very large. These carved or cave tombs had very large stones put in place to block the opening. Uh, you did not want any animals getting to your loved ones remains. I thought that was, inter- you know, as I thought of this, I thought, well, that's an interesting term. Your loved one's remains. Because it's exactly what it is. You know, they're not there. They're, something's gone from there. This, this is what remains. They're, it's left behind, you know, as they go. It must come from a Christian culture background, <laughs> that idea. In any case, the stone had been moved and the opening was revealed in the verse 5, it says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. What's that guy doing here? A young man, and I think it's clear that this is an angel appearing as a man. Some might think, I don't know, it's just a young man wandering by or saw what went on. Uh, But angels appear as men many times. This is something they're able to do. And we find many appearances of angels in the form of men in the Bible. Uh, One of the ones I think of is Genesis 18 where Abraham's sitting at the door of his tent and he sees three men approaching. And so he hurries to prepare them a meal and to bless them. And so as they're there talking, uh, two of the guys take off, two of the men take off, and it says, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And so he has this conversation with the Lord where, you know, he, and this kind of comes up in our Jeremiah study where he says, uh, what if there are 50 there in Sodom? Will you destroy it? And he said, no, if I find 50. And Abraham says, well, what if there are 40? You know, and he keeps going down to finally he gets to 10 and then Abraham gives up because he's got relatives there and he thinks, you know, with the sons and the Daughter-in-laws and all, there should be ten, you know, but of course they weren't. Um, but anyway, as these two guys depart, it says in the next chapter they come to Sodom and it, and we find that they are identified as angels. So you had three men. Two were angels. One was probably the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. You know, he would appear as a man. Uh, so we see that. Um, another example is Daniel 9, where... Gabriel, the angel appears to get, uh, Daniel as a man and informs him about the coming of Jesus. In Joshua five, there's an interesting passage when Joshua is getting ready to you know, go in and they're going to conquer the land, and Joshua's out, um, probably praying, seeking the Lord, and he sees this warrior with a drawn sword. You know, and he says, "Are you with us? or Are you with our enemies?" And he says, um, no <laughs> he says, but I'm the commander of the Lord's army, so we need to be with with him he's you know he he'll be with us and work with him, but um, we can't just have him you know well are you going to be with us if we aren't seeking him and following him and then in judges thirteen, the angel of the Lord with a definite article when you see that you can be certain that it's The Lord Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance, uh, carrying this out. Uh, Judges Judges 13, when uh, Manoah and his wife are childless, and this man appears to her and tells her, you know, she's going to have a child, and you shouldn't let any, he can't partake of the fruit of the vine, no, no wine, no grapes or anything of that sort. And then he goes away, and so she goes and tells her husband, you know this person came and told me these things and uh, I think it was an angel, you know, and so they, he uh, says, well, if he comes back, we'll ask him some more stuff, you know, basically. And so she's out by herself. He comes back again and talks to her. And so she runs and gets him and they come and they do a sacrifice. And he says, uh, you know, just sacrifice on this rock here to the Lord. And then. He touches that with his staff, and it all goes up in flames, and he goes up in the flame. (laughs) And so Manoah's like, oh, we've seen God face to face, you know, and we're going to (laughs) die. And his wife is much more practical and sensible, and she says, if he wanted to kill us, we'd be dead by now. (laughs) He wouldn't have told us all this stuff to do all this stuff. (laughs) But the angel of the Lord appearing. So angels appeared as men. And in the Hebrews 11 and verse 2, we're told, Do not forget to entertain strangers, people you don't know. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Uh, there are going to be people who arrive in heaven and they will wittingly at that point realize that they entertained angels because they still don't know. You know, they're unwitting about it. <laughs> and some people, of course, probably know when they, you know, somebody... You're helping and then they're gone, you know. (laughs) It's not the vanishing hitchhiker, it's an angel, you know. Well, the Gospels vary in their accounts of angels in the resurrection accounts. We find the one here in Mark. And critics cite these variances as proof that the story is not true. But the accounts are not contradictory. They simply emphasize different details. We find this difference in emphasis in other areas of the Gospels as well, in some of the narratives of things that Jesus did or said. One writer cites a detail that another does not. One writer records an event or words of Jesus that another does not. One gives more detail of the same event than another does. And so the critic says, oh, the Bible has contradictions. It's full of contradictions. So it's good and helpful to consider what constitutes a contradiction. And it, it this goes according to the laws of logic. If you had any philosophy courses or anything like, Like that, you probably studied the laws of logic in school. There's a law of non-contradiction. And this is uh, one of the basic laws in classical logic. And it states that something cannot be both true and not true at the same time when dealing with the same context. Okay? So this would be... uh, It's contradictory if... It's, you know, the same thing is being said... Opposite things are being said about it uh, in the same context, and that would be a contradiction. It's, It's important to realize in order to demonstrate a contradiction, it's not merely enough to show two claims A and B are opposite of one another and are mutually exclusive. One need to further demonstrate claim A and B are in opposition to one another at the same time. For example, the claims that Joe has washed, Joe has washed the dishes and Joe has not washed the dishes are in opposition to one another. But it's not a contradiction if yesterday someone asked if Joe has washed the dishes, and the answer is yes, while today the answer is no. And these are the kind of things you find in the gospel records and other areas of scripture. A contradiction occurs when two or more claims conflict with one another so they cannot simultaneously be true in the same sense and at the same time. I'm repeating this in different ways just to help. It, to put it another way, a Bible contradiction exists and they don't exist. But this is what the examples say: when there are claims within the Bible that are mutually exclusive in the same sense and at the same time. When dealing with skeptics' claim of Bible contradictions, it seems one can never be reminded enough of what exactly is a contradiction. Contradiction occurs when two or more claims conflict with one another so that they cannot simultaneously be true in the same sense and at the same time. This is what we find with the example of angels in different appearances at the tomb as Jesus rose. But another way a Bible contradiction exists when there are claims within the Bible that are mutually exclusive in the same sense at the same time. So we got this example of Mark. He mentions a young man, which the women saw in the tomb. Matthew and his account speaks of an angel also, who he identifies as an angel, who sat upon the stone after moving it away from the tomb opening. That's Matthew twenty-eight two. Luke mentions two men. Two men, he says, who stood by the women in shining garments. Luke twenty-four four. And John also says two angels appeared to Mary. Magdalene in white, and they were sitting at the foot and the head of the space where Jesus' body was. That's John 20 and verse 12. But there's not a contradiction here because the passages that mentioned a singular person seen at the tomb, Matthew 28 and Mark 16, do not state that he was there was only one angel or only one man present. If it did say that, then we would have a contradiction, possibly because there are different time frames here also. Again, in order for there to be a contradiction against uh, the passages that talk about two angels present at the tomb, this would have to say only one angel or only one man. Other passages must necessarily exclude the possibility of two angels, such as the wording, there was only one angel. Since such language is not found in the text, there's not a contradiction between these verses. There's an example from secular history, and you'll find, you know, probably numerous places where you can identify this in secular historical accounts. But there was a couple of reports talking about the Louisiana Purchase. That was really a good purchase, you know, price-wise. But one account, this is in a historical account, you know, one account says President Thomas Jefferson sent Robert Livingston to France to negotiate the purchase. But another account states that Jefferson dispatched two men, Robert Livingston and James Monroe. Do we have a contradiction? Of course not. Both accounts are correct in their claims. It is just that one account gave more specific and additional details. If, if the one account said he sent Robert Livingston alone to negotiate the purchase and then the other one says he sent Robert Livingston and James Monroe, well, one of them would be incorrect. They would be contradictory, you'd have to figure out which one was true. So how many angels were present on the morning of the resurrection? At least two, because we have in a couple of accounts that there were two, so there were at least two, but there could have been as many as six that are identified for us because all these could have been in different, slightly different time frame situations. You know, and as you read the gospels you can kind of see uh, the women come at different times, different things happening. So there were at least two. Imagine the, I imagine the sight was rife with angels on this morning. They are amazed by what has happened and they want to know more. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, the context of this passage is in our trials and the testing of our faith. In verse 8 he says, Whom having not seen you love, we love a God who we have never seen. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In verse 10, he says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So all these prophets that we have, The words of, you know, they were wondering, when's this going to happen, Lord? What's it all about? And it was revealed to them in verse 12 that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So the angels are curious about, I mean, this is an amazing thing to the angels. Grace of God. They see the, their fallen compatriots, you know, who don't have it. They don't receive any grace. But the grace of God through Jesus Christ and this sacrifice has taken place. God himself becoming flesh, dying, and then coming back to life. Amazing thing. I they were probably thronging this scene. If they were allowed to, as many as were allowed to, they probably were like, all right, let's check this out, see what's going what's to happen here. Uh, He goes on to exhort us uh, after things which the angels desire to look into. He says, therefore, they're all interested in it, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So this is an exhortation to holiness based on the interest of the prophets and what they say and the angels desiring to see this. If we have been believers for some time, we may take these unequivocally astonishing events for granted. It's something we've heard often and it may seem old hat to us. But it is anything but. We are all subject to the illusion of the mundane. So we are often exhorted to stir ourselves up, to draw near to the Lord, to be awake and alert rather than in slumber. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 begins, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed, listening to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So when the women arrive at the tomb, the stones rolled away from the door to to the sepulcher. The tomb is empty. There wasn't any dispute at the time about the tomb being empty. This was not in dispute. The problem for those who had Christ killed was how to explain that the tomb was empty. They could not say that the body was in the tomb because they could not produce it. They finally settled on the story that the disciples had come at night and stolen the body. But the disciples were in hiding, fearing for their own lives, and they were dealing with severe disappointment. Now convinced that they had it wrong, and Jesus was not the one who was promised. He did not set up Israel's everlasting kingdom. And we see their mindset in the thinking of the two on the road to Emmaus whom Jesus appeared to. When Jesus asked why they were walking and sad and talking about these things, Luke 24 verse 18 The one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Jesus could have told him a lot, (laughs) but he keeps his own counsel. (laughs) He said to them, What things? I'm clueless. (laughs) I'm a child in these matters. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. So they still, you know, they saw him do all these things. He has to be a mighty prophet. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We're not hoping that anymore. That hope is gone, even though they've had reports from the women. I mean, who can believe what the women say? They're so, you know. Uh, and and so we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today's the third day since these things happened. And Jesus, is like, oh, the third day, huh? huh. <laughs> he goes on to talk about, you know, some of our women went to the tomb and they they heard these angels tell them he's risen and all, but he wasn't there. Well, there have been a number of famous men in history who have set out to prove the falsity of the resurrection and ended up, after thorough investigation, coming to believe that Jesus has indeed risen. I want to briefly highlight a number of these men, some of whom you may be familiar with. And, of course, their full testimonies are much longer. Uh, Some of them have written books uh, chronicling their experience as they've done so. The first one that came to mind was Albert Henry Ross, 1881 to 1950. So he was almost a contemporary with me. I never knew him by the name Albert Henry Ross. I knew him by the name Frank Morrison, with one R. And Frank wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? And that's the big question, you know, of course, The Rising from the Dead. He was a lawyer, a journalist, a novelist who grew up in Stratford-on-Avon, England, which is, you know, the place of Shakespeare. Deeply affected by the skepticism of the times, particularly the attacks on the Bible by theological liberalism and Darwinism, and after becoming a lawyer, he set out to write a book to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Instead, he was converted and wrote a book in defense of the resurrection entitled Who Moved the Stone? which is still in print today. I looked it up. You can still get it. He wrote the book under the name of Frank Morrison. Uh, again, I'll, I'll give a disclaimer here because I don't necessarily support everything that any of these guys came to. I don't even know all their conclusions that they, they came to. So I don't want to just um, blindly endorse them. But certainly, they had this in common that they set out to either disprove the resurrection or, or the Bible. And they ended up being totally turned around in what they did. Um, He writes, such briefly was the purpose of the book I had planned, which was to take, he says, I wanted to take this last phase of the life, life of Jesus. So he was looking at the last week of Jesus along with the death and resurrection. He said, I want to take the last phase of the life of Jesus with all its quick and pulsating drama, its sharp, clear-cut background of antiquity and its tremendous psychological and human interest to strip it of its overgrowth of primitive beliefs and dogmatic suppositions. In other words, get rid of all miracles and everything of that sort. And to see this supremely great person as he really was. So he wanted to present the historical Jesus. Without all the religious trappings and all those sorts of things. He says, "...things emerged from old world story that previously I should have thought impossible. Slowly but very definitely the conviction grew that the drama of those unforgettable weeks of human history was stranger and deeper than it seemed. It was the strangeness of many notable things in the story that first arrested and held my interest." It was only later that the irresistible logic of their meaning came into view. He writes the first chapter, which was called the book that refused to be written. He came to write this certain book, and then he found he could not write that book, and he had to write a different book because of the conclusions he came to in and, and the end of the first chapter. Chapter. He says, "I want to try in the remaining chapters of this book to explain why that other venture never came to port. What were the hidden rocks on which it foundered, and how I land, how uh, I landed, which was to me on an unexpected shore." (laughs) Comes to the office. So, who moved the stone? By Frank Morrison. The women didn't move the stone. They were wondering who could move the stone. They weren't strong enough. The apostles didn't move the stone. They were in hiding. And there was a guard set to keep people from moving the stone. The guard didn't move the stone. There would be no purpose in them doing so. Um, the only thing that remains is, as we're told, it's the angel of the Lord. Now David Guzik says, uh, Matthew 27, 65, and 66, reminds us that there was a guard set around the tomb. All this shows that the stone could not have been rolled away by the women or by the disciples. We also understand that no one else wanted to roll away the stone. They were plenty happy with the stone being there. Uh, But the scriptures tell us, Matthew 28, 2 and 3, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. This is what the guards saw. As the angel descending, the stone's moved, and the angel sits on the stone. I don't know, did he cross his legs? (laughs) Like, check it out. By the way, the stone was not moved so Jesus could get out. He was already gone. Now, his resurrection body had no problem with material obstacles. He came into the upper room twice when the door was shut, which indicates it was bolted. The stone was moved so witnesses could get in and see that the tomb was empty. Another guy named Gilbert West uh, set out to disprove the Bible, 1703 to 1756. He was included in Samuel Johnson's Lives of the Most Eminent English Poets. As a student at Oxford, West set out to debunk the Bible's account of Christ's resurrection. Instead, having proved to himself that Christ did rise from the dead, he was converted. West published his conclusions in the book. And these are the kind of titles they had back in 1747. The book, Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Awesome. On the fly leaf, he had, him, him, he had the following printed, Blame not before thou hast examined the truth. <laughs> so don't make fun of me <laughs> for my conclusions until you've looked at it. He concludes his book with this. If Christ had not risen and proved himself by many infallible tokens to have risen from the dead, the apostles and disciples could have had no inducement to believe in him, that is, to acknowledge him for the Messiah, the anointed of God. On the contrary, they must have taken him for an imposter. And under that persuasion could never have become preachers of the gospel without becoming enthusiasts or impostors. In either of which characters, it is impossible they should have succeeded to the degree which they, we are assured they did, considering their natural insufficiency, the strong opposition of all the world to the doctrines of Christianity, and their own high pretensions to miraculous powers, about which they could neither have, uh, they could neither have been deceived themselves nor have deceived others. Supposing, therefore, that Christ did not rise from the dead, it is certain, according to all human probability, there could never have been any such thing at all as Christianity, or it must have been stifled soon after its birth. George Littleton, which I have heard his name before, 1709, 1773, he was an English statesman, author, and poet, a lot of poets here, who were educated, he was educated at Eton and Oxford, very top, among other things, he published a history of Henry the Second. And as a young man, he set out to prove that Paul was not converted, as the Bible states. Instead, he wrote a book containing evidence that Paul was indeed converted, and that his conversion is evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. There's no other explanation for Paul's conversion than the resurrection and Jesus appearing to him. His book was titled, this is also 1747, observations on the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul. So, much briefer time. Littleton observed that from an earthly perspective, Paul had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose by testifying that he had seen the risen Christ. Giving up his position and prestige as a Jewish religious leader, he joined the despised Christian sect, so he was a Jew, and was hounded, mocked, and persecuted while well, he's speaking of Paul. For was hounded, mocked, and persecuted for the rest of his life. Finally, paying the ultimate price for his Christian faith, death by beheading. Paul was not crucified as Peter was because Paul was a Roman citizen. So you got the opportunity, the choice of being beheaded and not suffering, you know, the, the on the cross. Another guy was named Simon Greenleaf. You may have heard of him. There's a school of law named after him, Simon Greenleaf School of Law. He lived from 1783 to 1853. And George, uh, no, it was uh, uh, Montgomery, a uh, doctor Montgomery. I can't think of his name right now. I would read it earlier. I don't think it's in this this account. No, not Montgomery Boys. Is uh, anyway, that's you can look it up. It's not, it's not a big deal. But Simon Greenleaf was the Royal Professor of Law at Harvard University. Royal with two L's. That tells you how royal it is. <laughs> he was one of the most celebrated legal minds in American history. His treatise on the law of evidence is still considered the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire literature. Of legal procedure. As a law professor, he determined to expose the myth of the resurrection of Christ once and for all, but his thorough examination forced him to conclude instead that Jesus did rise from the dead. In 1846, he published An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence administered in the Courts of Justice. He gets an award for the longest title. Thus, one of the most celebrated minds in the legal profession of the past two centuries took the resurrection of Christ to trial, diligently examined the evidence, and judged it to be an established fact of history. And this was in spite of the fact that he began his investigation as a skeptic. One of Greenleaf's points is that nothing but the resurrection itself can explain the dramatic change in Christ's disciples and their willingness to suffer and die for their testimony. I'll give you another excerpt from his book, says, their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. His religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. The laws of every country were against the teachings of his disciples. The interests and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. It sounds kind of like uh, the period of history we're entering into and have we've been in, but we're accelerating into Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith they zealously did propagate, and all these miseries they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing. As one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work with increased vigor and resolution." The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unblinching courage. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great facts and truths which they asserted. And these motives were pressed upon their attention with the most melancholy and terrific frequency. It was therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths that they had narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. And had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact, if then their testimony was not true, there was no possible motive for its fabrication. His, the hist, you know, he gives his the law of testimony and this is what he concluded from that. William Mitchell Ramsey, 1851-1939. to 1939. He was a renowned archaeologist. You may have heard of him if you've looked any at any biblical archaeology kind of things he was a new testament scholar from scotland he was knighted by the british crown for his work in archaeology he was raised an atheist and as a brilliant student at the university of aberdeen in scotland and at oxford university in england he sat at the feet of theological modernists and skeptics who disbelieved the bible it was assumed that the bible is not historically accurate and that it contains a large portion of mythology it was thought that the book of Acts was not written until 150 A.D., about a century after the events it describes. And when Ramsey began archaeological and historical research in Asia Minor beginning in 1881, he expected and hoped to find more evidence against the Bible. Instead, he discovered that fact after fact supported the Bible. He eventually concluded that the book of Acts was written during the lifetime of the Apostles and that it is historically accurate, and that's true. His discoveries led to his conversion to Christianity. He testified this, The present writer takes the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. At this point, we are describing what reasons and arguments changed the mind of one who began under the impression that the history was written long after the events and that it was untrustworthy as a whole. This is from his book, The Bearing of Recent Discovery on the Trustworthiness of the New Testament, which he wrote in 1915. Ramsey found that all the criticism of Luke's account of first century life to be unfounded. And this is what the skeptics were saying. They said, well, he got the names of officials wrong. He got all these different things wrong this, you know, because they were familiar with later Roman uh, culture. And so they were saying, well, Luke got everything wrong. So he just had to live long after the fact made things up. Ramsey says every one of Luke's facts checked out. He found Luke to use specific and accurate terminology and that he discovered through archaeology that reflected a careful chronicle of events. There were pro-councils in senatorial provinces. That's what Luke says. There were Asiarchs in Ephesus. There were Politarchs in Thessalonica. His conclusion was that Luke was a highly reliable historian, rendering the story of the early church in the book of Acts a remarkably clear one. It says the title Polytarch in Acts 17.6 is particularly striking, that's in Thessalonica, because until Ramsey's investigation, the term was unknown in Greek literature outside the book of Acts. Ramsey found five inscriptions with the term in the city. Of Thessalonica when he did his archaeology. Vigo Olson, 1926 to 2022, he just passed away in January. Uh, he wrote from he wrote a, I don't know if it's paper or book, from agnostic to ambassador to Bangladesh. Vigo Olson was a brilliant surgeon who graduated cum laude from medical school and later became a diplomat of the American Board of Surgery and a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, in 1951 he was challenged by his wife's parents to examine the claims of Christianity for himself. Good parents. Olson recalled, just like just alike a surgeon incises a chest, we were going to slash into the Bible and dissect out all its embarrassing scientific mistakes. After he started his investigation, he ran into problems. He remembers that he had trouble finding scientific mistakes. (laughs) We'd find something that seemed to be an error, but on further reflection and study, we saw that our understanding had been shallow. That made us sit up and take notice. After examining the evidence, Olson became a Christian and later gave his life to be a missionary in Bangladesh. He was later honored with Visa Number 001 for his contributions to the country. This is a man who is extremely educated, a brilliant surgeon, someone who is not willing to take a blind leap of faith. And after exhaustive research, he was willing to admit, like so many others have, that the historic Christian faith is much more than a religion. It is based on a man who walked this earth as the Theanthropos, the God-man. The evidence that supports the resurrection of Jesus is so overwhelming, it demands a verdict, And Christianity lives and dies by the fact of the resurrection. Without it, Christianity does not hold water. Olson went from an agnostic to giving up his career, his entire life to serve people in Bangladesh. He wrote this, It was the greatest adventure we could ever have. When you're in a hard place, when you're in over your head again and again, when you're sinking and beyond yourself and praying your heart out, then you see God reach out and touch your life and resolve the situation beyond anything you could have ever hoped, That's living it up. In my opinion, finding the purpose for which God made you, whatever it may be, and then fully pursuing it is simply the very best way to live. Josh McDowell, 1941. You're more more than likely familiar with Josh McDowell. He wrote a book called The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, And it's more of a reference work. You know, it's not really a book. You you can sit down and read it from cover to cover, but it's chalked so full of different facts and ideas, and, and it's easy to look things up in it. So it's really like an encyclopedia almost. Uh, excerpts from it are in a little book called More Than a Carpenter, which deals with the deity of Christ. But he wrote this book, Evidence that Demands a Verdict. He was a skeptic when he enter, entered university to pursue a law degree. There he met some Christians who challenged him to examine the evidence of the Bible in Jesus Christ. And his testimony is, as a teenager, I wanted the answers to three basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Those are three basic questions for everybody. So as a young student, I started looking for answers. I thought that education might have the answer to my quest for happiness and meaning, so I enrolled in the university. What a disappointment. I have probably been on more university campuses in my lifetime than anyone else in history. Not sure about that, but he was... working with Campus Crusade for Christ for years, and so he would go campus, campus. You can find lots of things in the university, but enrolling there to find truth and meaning in life is virtually a lost cause. My new friends issued me a challenge I couldn't believe. They challenged me, a pre-law student, to examine intellectually the claim that Jesus Christ is God's son. I thought this was a joke. These Christians were so dumb. (laughs) How could something as flimsy as Christianity stand up to an intellectual examination? I scoffed at their challenge. I finally accepted their challenge, not to prove anything, but to refute them. I decided to write a book that would make an intellectual joke of Christianity. I left the university and traveled throughout the U.S. and Europe to gather evidence to prove Christianity is a sham. He concludes, after trying to shatter the historicity and validity of the scripture, I came to the conclusion that it is historically trustworthy. If one discards the Bible as being unreliable, then one must discard he says, almost all of all literature of antiquity. I think you probably have to discu- uh, discard all literature of antiquity. <coughs> he says, one problem I constantly face is the desire on the part of many to apply one standard or test to secular literature and another to the Bible. One must apply the same test, whether the literature under investigation is secular or religious. Having done this... I believe we can hold the Scripture in our hands and say the Bible is trustworthy and historically reliable. I think there's just a couple more briefly. Uh, Lee Strobel, who you're familiar with, and was born in 1952. He's a year younger than, than I am. He has a law degree from Yale University. He worked as an investigative reporter for one of America's largest newspapers, Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. After his wife became a Christian in 1979, he was upset at her decision and determined to prove that the Bible is not true and that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. For two years, he pursued this objective using all his legal and journalistic skills, but in the end, he had proved to himself that the Bible is the Word of God and Jesus rose from the dead. He became a Christian in 1981 and has since written many books defending the Christian faith. He says, I plunged into the case with more vigor than uh, with any story I had ever pursued. I applied the training I had received at Yale Law School as well as my experience as legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. And over time, the evidence of the world, of history, of science, of philosophy, of psychology began to point toward the unthinkable. This is from his book, The Case for Christ, a journalist's personal investigation of the evidence for Jesus. He became convinced the Bible's true and that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And uh, last, I'm sure there are a lot of other guys out there, but this is a good sample. (laughs) J. Warner Wallace, born in 1961. You may have heard him, but he was a cold case homicide detective. So you have Simon Greenleaf on the laws of evidence, and then you have this guy who investigated cold cases for a number of years, successfully investigated them. Uh, He's been featured on Dateline. He became a Christ follower at the age of 35 after investigating the claims of the New Testament Gospels using his skill set as a detective. Jay Warner's book Cold Case Christianity provides readers with ten principles of cold case investigations and utilizes these principles to examine the reliability of the Gospel eyewitness accounts because he took a lot of eyewitness statements. And so he applied those same rules that he would use to the eyewitness accounts of the Scriptures. So that's a few guys. The Bible itself is the book that will not die and cannot be killed. The more men seek to eradicate it, the more it spreads. It may be underground or overhead, but it will continue to seep out into the world of men. Above all other books combined, the Bible has been hated, vilified, ridiculed, criticized, restricted, banned, and destroyed. But it has been to no avail. As one rightly said, we might as well put our shoulder to the burning wheel of the sun and try to stop it on its flaming course as attempt to stop the circulation of the Bible, as Sidney call it. In AD 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued an edict to stop Christians from worshiping Jesus Christ and to destroy their scriptures. Every official in the empire was ordered to raise the churches to the ground and burn every Bible found in their districts. Twenty-five years later, Diocletian's successor Constantine issued another edict ordering 50 Bibles to be published at government expense, according to Eusebius. Whatever you think of Constantine, we see a turnaround there. From destroying the Bible to the government actually publishing the Bible. 1778, the French infidel Voltaire boasted that in 100 years, Christianity would cease to exist. But within 50 years, the Geneva Bible Society used his press and his house to publish Bibles. Robert Ingersoll, 1833-99, to 99, once boasted, Within 15 years I'll have the Bible lodged in a morgue. But Ingersoll's dead and the Bible is alive and well. We have these records of men who tried to disprove the resurrection or the biblical record, but came to believe against their expectation or even their desire. There is something about the Word of God that cannot be denied when it is examined honestly. It can be denied if you examine it dishonestly. We have no record anywhere of anyone who has successfully disproven the resurrection. He is risen indeed. In verses 6 and 7 of Mark 16, uh, the angel says to the women, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But you go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So the angel speaks. He tells him, this is the place where Jesus of Nazareth was laid. Full identification. It's his tomb, not some other Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth was laid here. He was crucified, executed. He was dead when he was laid in the tomb. He's risen. Look, he's not here. David Guzik says the angel painted the contrast between what Jesus was and what he is. He was crucified beyond all doubt. That means he was dead. Now he's risen, not only resuscitated, resuscitated, but resurrected. When we see the place where they laid him is now empty, we see that the Father did not forsake Jesus. When we see the place where they laid him is now empty, we see that death is conquered. When we see the place where they laid him is now empty, we see that we have a living friend in Jesus. John tells us the burial cloths were left behind. So Jesus rose and he just left those things there. It made me think about the rapture. You know, we're gonna leave our there's there's a dispute about whether we're gonna leave our clothes behind or not. But we're gonna get a new body, new robes. We won't need we won't need these rags anymore. We'll get white shining garments which are we're told are the righteous acts of the saints in Revelation nineteen, verses six through eight. This is second coming. I beheld, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, "Hallelujah! for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, there are many believers and Bible scholars included who say this gospel of Mark, beginning with verse 9, the rest of it doesn't belong here. Now, this is what we're going to look at in a little more detail next week as we seek to finish the book. Now, some critics have used this to argue against the resurrection of Jesus, since the post-resurrection appearances are given in those verses, um, Some say the women are simply mistaken. In their confusion and hopefulness, they mishear the angel or the young man. You know, it's just a young man in a tomb. And he says, he's not here. Come see the place where they laid him. I'll take you to the the real tomb. You know, that's what some of the Bible critics have said. Uh, That is, you got the wrong tomb. I'll show you where he is. This doesn't help the critics' cause at all. If they went to the wrong tomb, rest assured that the Romans and the Jewish leaders knew very well where the tomb was, having secured, sealed, and guarded it. They would simply bring forth the body and show that Jesus was still dead and recognizable. The wounds were still there, as they were when he appeared to the disciples and to Thomas. But even without the ending from verses 9 through 20, it's clearly stated that the reason he is not here is because he is risen. He points them to the empty tomb, not another tomb. Uh, the angel tells them, don't be alarmed or amazed. This is to be, to be struck with amazement. He's saying, don't freak out. you know. Don't fall over dead. I know you're talking to an angel. To be thoroughly amazed, to be astounded, to be struck with terror. A lot of people were, were terrified when they were in the presence of, even of angels. They would fall down like they were dead and they would tremble and so forth. Uh, It's beyond be not afraid or fear not. This is don't be terrified. People are usually terrified in the presence of these angels, depending upon the level of the angels' revelation of God's holiness. William MacDonald says the angel, in this passage, then commissioned them as heralds of the resurrection. These women were sent forth to tell the disciples and Peter, he's risen from the dead. If they were to tell them that Jesus would meet them in Galilee, He says, notice that Peter, the disciple who had denied his Lord, was singled out for special mention. Now, go tell the disciples and Peter. The risen Redeemer had not disowned him, but still loved him and longed to see him again. A special work of restoration needed to be done. The wandering sheep must be brought back into fellowship with the shepherd. Spurgeon says, if any of you have behaved worse to your master than others, you are peculiarly Peculiarly, I have now. You're peculiarly called to come to Him now. You have grieved Him and you have been grieving because you have grieved Him. You have been brought to repentance after having slidden away from Him. And now He seals your pardon by inviting you to Himself. In verse 8, we're told that the women went out quickly. They fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. As I said, some say that Mark's original writing ended here. Uh, If you have a modern Bible translation, you may see notes or some other indication. For example, the passage in italics indicating that they don't believe it belongs here. Uh, I'm convinced that it absolutely belongs here. And we'll talk about some of the practical reasons why, and not today, but if the rapture doesn't happen between now and next week, Lord willing, and I don't get raptured myself in some way, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> if you have a modern Bible translation, you're at least going to see footnotes, you know, but you may see other indications. They haven't yet removed, you know, some things that they think don't belong in some manuscripts they will actually remove and sometimes they don't even give you an indication that they've done anything. Major passages they haven't been bold enough to do that with yet because nobody would buy their Bible (laughs) if they did. That's the basic reason. This is clearly, verse 8, clearly not a normal place to end the gospel. The women steeped in fear and unable to speak we know from other gosp- the other gospels that the women do go and tell the apostles and peter about what they have seen and heard what we read here means they didn't say anything to anyone until they came to the disciples they were you know we got to get there and carry out this task and they were afraid and amazed and they, so they didn't talk to anybody until they got to where the disciples and peter were G. Campbell Morgan says these women left the tomb and fled, seized with trembling and astonishment. Uh, when it says that, the actual Greek word there is the the word from which we get ecstasy. They were filled with trembling and ecstasy. So you got the the whole spectrum, you know, (laughs) from fear to uh, elation. Uh, They were seized with trembling and ecstasy, filled with fear. So they fled from the tomb and and. Mark does continue on, starting in verse 9, so we'll pick up there next time, uh, Lord willing, and we'll, we'll look at some of the evidence for why that is belongs in Scripture and why it's part of the Gospel of Mark.